in the mind of you know the ancient Near East. It's kind of ironic because Ethiopia is landlocked now. It's when, yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even to this day, I think I would say, and I think those of us who have been to Ethiopia would say it's still very much the land of mystery. Oh, yeah. There's stuff that happens in Ethiopia that is not explainable by modern sensibilities. It's just not. It's just. It's just the fact of the matter is it's just a wild place. Um, there's a monastery up in the mountains of Ethiopia, and the elevation is so high that they, they literally don't know how that monastery even exists. Like how, like, they don't know how it got there. It's just there. Um, the stories of the saints in Ethiopia are just wild and crazy stories. Um, I think most of the land that hasn't been explored by, um, well, let's say the modern West, is at this point mostly in South America and Africa. So it's still very much the land of mystery. Um, I could go on and on about that. But. So we've got the extreme south. When you talk about Tarshish, that's going to be the extreme west because that's that's Spain, right? Go any further than that and you're in the ocean, right? So when Jonah goes, and Jonah was a contemporary of Isaiah, when Jonah goes to Tarshish, He's going as far as the map would take him. It's it's not yeah. It, what the significance of Tarshish is that it's the end of the map. It's the end yeah. Of the world. yeah, he goes to the end of the world. Um, uh, he tries to. Right? He tries to. <laughs> yeah, he, he tries ends up to. No. Yeah, he ends up not actually going. But he's I in route. The other direction, I think. Nineveh is like north uh, east. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah north, because then you're in the land of Assyria, uh, which brings us to the north and the east. We're going to talk today about the extreme north. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so we have, um, as you all know, different methods that have been handed down to us of interpreting scripture. I know, uh, Nick, you've covered this in some depth, the different methods of scripture interpretation. You have the, the historical grammatical interpretation, which is a couple things lumped together, but it's basically looking at the story from a historical literalist perspective, reading it like a history book. And it, it tends to go from the angle of, if you're trying to understand stuff with it, you're kind of looking at it from the point of view of what the author intended. What was the author just trying to communicate in a very straightforward manner? Um, what I'm about to say is not to discount that at all, because that is a very valuable method of scripture interpretation. But it's not the only one. And I think we tend to default to that today, especially when we're looking at Old Testament stuff like this, where there's so much history and so much geography, and you just have to get through you have to get through all of that to even begin to understand what he's talking about, right? So it's almost like we get stuck in that method of interpretation. Um, you know, I, I benefit greatly from that method of interpretation, and so and what I'm saying is not to disparage it at all. One of these books that I brought, I wanted to show you some of the books that have been really valuable to me in my study of Isaiah, and one of them is entirely historical grammatical. This is the Bible background commentary put together by... Um, 
mainly by a guy named John Walton. You are the one who turned me on to John Walton, and he's become my favorite Old Testament scholar. Well, he's historical grammatical all the way. Like, his whole thing is getting into the mind of the ancient Near Eastern everyday person. How did they see the world? So that's a super valuable thing. But we're not ancient Near Eastern. We are 21st century, modern, Western. Um, And so we have to say, and we have to ask the question, what does this mean for us today? All this stuff about Kush and about Tarshish and about Assyria, what does all this have to do with us today? Um, And the answer to that um, is the uh, stereotypical uh, Sunday school kids answer, Jesus. (laughs) That's the answer. But then what does that mean? Well, another method of interpretation of Scripture is, is the Christological one. And again, I'm rehashing what Nick's already been covering, but to say that there's things in these stories that are types or or allegories or shadows of Christ. Yeah? Just to agree with your point, I, just one example from my own life, <clears throat> I've benefited greatly by the yes. uh, historical grammatical method. And uh, I've got a set of two commentaries, I guess, about that wide. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Walk in the book of Proverbs. Yeah. I benefited greatly from it. But if you're just woodenly committed to it, sometimes you can't see the forest or the trees. Yes. So when we can yes. do something like Proverbs uh, 30, where these two wise men say, Well, what is God's son name? And what is his name? Sure, you're smart, you know. Yeah. Well, the Son of God is showing up in the book of Proverbs. It's mm-hmm. a Christological revelation. Yes. And uh, uh, the commentator, who's Bruce Walk, he's a major Hebrew college guy, and he knows all this stuff. And he just, he said something really lame. I don't remember what it was, but it was some son that was walking yeah. around out there in Israel or something. I said, man, you're missing, you're missing parts of the dream. Well, his defense for that, you know, if you were to push him on it, would probably be something like, well, that's not what... I don't know if it was Solomon or if it was someone else in that particular part of Proverbs. Okay, let's say, um, you know, these two wise men, that's not what they themselves were intending. And they may, he may be right about that. He He may be right. But he may not be. be. Uh, The point is that it really doesn't matter. And here's well, well, here's what I mean by that. Let me me sort of expound what I mean by that. Um, there's a verse in 1 Peter, and I don't have the exact verse in my head, but it says that the prophets, you'll recognize this verse, the prophets were longing to look into this stuff. Exactly. And they themselves did not understand the things they were talking That's about. True. That's true. Here's another thing. We just had our sermon recently on Luke 24. Again, I'm rehashing what Nick's already been talking about. But Christ says very clearly in Luke 24 that all of the scriptures are about him. Yes. yes. From the start to the finish. I think that gives us warrant. Everything we say is not right, obviously. Yes. It gives us warrant to at least look for Christ. To look for Christ. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now we're beyond the realm of just what the author exactly. intended. Exactly. Now, we believe that there are Old Testament saints, right? So, so it's not that they didn't see Christ in these things. 
in their in the as much as they could understand them, they did. I mean, you know, you remember Joe, my redeemer lives, and all of that. Yeah. But there are things in the scriptures that God is saying beyond what the quote unquote author necessarily originally intended. Does that make sense? Yeah. So okay, all right. So now let's go one step further. Um, all of the scriptures are about Christ. Uh, not everything in scripture is strictly allegorical. So how then is all of the scriptures about Christ? And that's where the next method of interpretation comes in that I personally have found to be um, almost revolutionary in how I read the scriptures. And I'm not going to say that it's the highest level by any means because I think all of these work together. I think they all inform each other. But for me personally, this has been, you know, I tend to gravitate towards this particular method of interpretation. And so I can't help when I'm talking about this stuff of looking at it from that angle. So this is sort of my apology and defense for why, for the next hour, we're going to be in the mystical method of interpretation. Right? Okay, so there are patterns in the scriptures that are not just allegory. Right? And I used the example last time I was sitting here of the head and the body. Um, so let me try this from another angle since I've already used that one. Um, the book of Isaiah is the same thing as the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is where Christ says that the seed, which you know is the word, is scattered abroad to all of these different types of soil. Some of them end up being fertile, some of them not so much, right? And then what you end up having is a great harvest of the word bringing forth fruit. That's the book of Isaiah in a tiny, compressed, shall we say, seed-like form. Um, neither one is an allegory or a metaphor of the other. Right, it's a, it's it's a pattern. Right, Christ says something in a parable form that applies on both an individual level and on a sweeping cosmic historical level. It's the same story, right? But what you're seeing is the pattern. Does that make sense in any way? Yes. There's another parable about uh, the landowner who leaves and he sends his servants back, you know, with messages. They get killed, so he says, "Well, I'll send my son; they'll honor him." So yeah. he has the same message. Mm -hmm. So, you know, according to your pattern, that those servants of the Old Testament are just bringing the same message as the son did. Right, right. So there's your prophets. There's Isaiah in the yeah. story of, of Christ's parable. Yeah, yeah. I probably, I think this fits. Yeah, because. These different ways of teaching that it went over to what you're describing, all these things, and what you alluded to in First Peter. I've often looked at that verse, and, and um, it says here, which salvation the prophets acquired and searched diligently. So, I mean, they were studying it, all these kinds of things, using yeah. these types, and prophesied of the grace that should come, searching what manner, what uh, manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify. And to me, it's like if the Holy Spirit working in their life, in your life, in yours, all of us, 
works in different ways to show us the things of Christ in the Old Testament uh, with understanding somehow. So I, that, I'm not an educated that person. right there is how all of the scriptures is about Christ. Yes. Because it's the spirit of Christ yes, yes. infused in all of these things and bringing them to life. That's right. To and so you have you have a pattern that's true in your individual life, in our church life, mm -hmm. in sort of this cosmic, you know, grand narrative, um, you know, that we call history, yes. uh, that's still unfolding today. This is all the same thing. It's just scaled up. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. So that neither one is less real than the other. Right. So you know, if you're if you're talking about types and shadows, that's saying that you know one is well, a shadow is less real, right? Well, it's just a reflection. I think also that's why preachers. I mean, we're gonna have six or seven preachers up here and have a preaching contest. <laughs> Let's not do that. We preach on the same things. Right. And very well, every every sermon might be edifying. Yeah. We look at four and gospels. Yeah. yeah, they're different ways, but then they're all the same. One of them is more historical. One of them is more mystical. <laughs> and Craig has been teaching about that for a while. Hopefully what I'm saying here is building off of what we've been saying for quite some time now. I know Craig has been saying on Wednesday nights that what happens in Genesis, especially in those early chapters leading up to Abraham, is, is, is a setup for things to come. It's a... Uh, you know, the Genesis 1 is a setup for the pattern of the tabernacle, which will then be a setup for the crucifixion, which will then be a setup for the book of Revelation. Like, all of this is, we're talking about seeing the patterns. Genesis lays out the pattern. The Exodus story of redemption is a pattern leading up to, the, you know, the Passover and the Eucharist and all of that. We're talking, we're looking at the patterns. So, that there's my sort of defense for... Uh, the reason why I'm looking at this the way I am, I'm, I'm interested in the big picture patterns here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what I'm going to have to say is not going to be quite as historical. It's there. There's plenty of historical interpretation. Most of what's happening with Isaiah is also happening simultaneously in Second Kings. So you can track a lot of this stuff happening simultaneously. Um, <coughs> but anyway, here we are. Um, also, I mean, it's just, it's what I personally to be worshipful and edifying um, and so I just I can't I can't help but look at it from that lens because it's what I find exciting it's uh, so anyway anything else before we dive in chapter 22 um, so just a heads up we'll have a lot to say in the first few verses and then um, I won't have as much to say in the middle, and I'll kind of open the floor for if y'all have anything that sticks out to you that you think is worth us discussing. Um, and then it'll it'll slow down again near the end. So in the last third, if we have time for it, well, there's a lot that we can cover in the last third of this chapter. So um, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. The Septuagint reads Valley of Zion. I don't know why that difference is there. Those two things seem to be very different to me. I understand that the Valley of Vision might be a place near Zion. And um, it particularly, uh, there, there's a valley mentioned in Jeremiah 7 that I think some scholars say these, this may be referring to the same place. 
And the reason is because that particular valley was used for a lot of uh, false worship. They had some towers in this particular valley, and you'll see why that's connected in just a minute. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town. So Jerome, the uh, the church father, or you know, early church historian, who translated a lot of this stuff into Latin, um, he points out, and I didn't believe him at first, that um, this is about Gog, because the name Gog means rooftop or housetop. And when I read that, I said to myself, that's not true, because they're two different Hebrew words. Yeah. Um, they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. One of them is, if you were to transliterate it into English, it would be G-O-G, Gog. And then the other one is G-A-G, again, if you're transliterating it. Um, and that's the word for house top or roof. And then I remembered, uh, one, that the uh, church fathers are closer to this stuff than we are, so it's best to assume that they know what they're talking about, and more often than not. And secondly, I remembered that uh, vowels didn't exist in the same way back then. The uh, vowels were not a codified written part of Hebrew until like a th the year 1000. All right, so what that means is that one, at the time that Isaiah wrote this, and two, at the time that Jerome wrote his commentary on it, they were the same word. They were exactly the same. They even sounded the same. G-A-G, Gog, G-O-G, Gog. Does that make sense? It's not Gag, it's Gog. So it's the same word. So the Hebrew would have been just like G and G. Yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so Jerome points out that this is not just, uh, this is where we get into the mystical interpretation. This is not just talking about something that happened in Isaiah's lifetime. There's something apocalyptic going on in this prophecy. Because every time in scripture Gog shows up, it's apocalyptic. So, <coughs> what do y'all know about Gog and Magog? Battle of Armageddon. Battle of Armageddon. Yeah. yeah. What else? Did it come up in Genesis? Your Genesis study? Uh, Magog is in Genesis. Is he a son of Shem or Japheth? Oh, Japheth. He's a Japheth's son. Alright, that's significant. Here's why that's significant. It's right there. There he is. You want to pass that around? So you can well, see a lot of these people saw this. Oh, okay. Okay, alright. <laughs> We're talking about the extreme northeast of the map. Um... I am about to pass out some more maps, too, that will go along with yours. Um, so, the sons of Noah disperse from sort of the center of the map out. And it's not exactly the center, because, well, the center kind of changes. But, um, basically, in sort of a sweeping, generalized way, Ham goes south and Japheth goes north. So the descendants of Japheth 
are what we today would refer to as Europeans. And then some of these northeastern tribes, like the Scythians, and later the, the Huns and the Mongols, right? And that's what we're going to talk about with Gog and Magog. Um, now that's, that's a big generalization, but you sort of think of them as going opposite directions. Ham tends to go um, to the south, and Japheth tends to go to the north. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern way of looking at the world, it's actually one goes to the left and the other goes to the right. So you have to understand that in the ancient mind, east was up on the map. The sun starts at the top and works its way down. They didn't care about magnetic north and all of that. Um, this is a very different way of seeing the world. So imagine a map where uh, Jerusalem or you know Rome is at the center. East is at the top of the map. Africa is to the right. And then um, the descendants of Japheth are on the left. Now that I've put you through the trouble of having to imagine that, I have the maps here for you to look at. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of examples of this. And I've just picked out a few and put them on there. These are ancient world maps. Um, some of them are Greek. Some of them are Egyptian. Uh, some of them are Renaissance, or closer to Renaissance, not quite, but close. Um, and they're in no particular order on that page. I just sort of put them all on there for you to see just how differently the world was in the mind of um, Isaiah and the fathers and pretty much everybody up until us. It gives a whole new meaning to Jonah going to Tarshish, going to the bottom of the world. He's going not just to the ocean, yeah. not just to the edge of the world. He's going to the bottom of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so then he goes in the water, and he's literally at the bottom of the world. Yeah. I did a, a little bit of Wikipedia-style uh, uh, research into this, and the earliest uh, known compass was during the Han uh, Dynasty in China, Yeah, which was about... It, it's about 400 years long, equally divided between BC and AD. So, even in Christ's time, there would not have been any, any no. idea of magnetic north. No. No. Um, this is this is just tracking the movement of the sun. The sun starts at the top and works its way down. It's just it's just how they saw the world. Now, why does this matter? This matters because. Um, symbolically throughout scripture there is the left hand and the right hand of God alright on the right hand of God is is, uh, is mercy and on the left hand of God is judgment this is, this is I'm extrapolating from all of these scriptures together to say this in just kind of a concise paragraph form but you see this throughout the scriptures in all of these different examples. The left hand is the hand of judgment. We even have this in our sanctuary, by the way. Those two crosses at the front. Yeah, yeah. Which is the one with the cords broken? It's on Christ's right. right. 
right. So we already have this in our way of thinking about this. Um, Gog and Magog is on the left hand of the map, right? So I'm just pointing this out so that you can see conceptually Gog and Magog is a, is a, um, is like a cosmic or archetypal um, stand-in for the nations that God uses for judgment. Uh, and this is when you look through the church fathers and you uh, see what they have to say about Gog and Magog, they all, almost to a man, agree that we're talking about something like apocalyptic or cosmic every time you talk about Gog and Magog. There's no particular people group that you can point to historically and say this is this is Gog. It doesn't exist. There are assumptions and there are ideas. They think maybe it may have been uh, Lydia, may have been sort of associated with that, but no one knows for sure. So you have to you have to end with this sort of spiritual view of it, where it's it's um, it's the it's the, the 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 worst of the barbarian hordes that are going to come in from the mountains by 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 God's bidding. And they're, they're going to do what they do. Um, and I have a couple quotes here from the fathers about this. Um, just to show that I'm not making this up. This is from Augustine. That's a familiar name. Gog and Magog are not to be thought of as some definite barbarians dwelling in a certain part of the earth. John, and he's talking about Revelation here, because Gog and Magog show up in Revelation 20. Um... In fact, let's read that. Someone pull up Revelation 20. That's the words. Uh, start. I don't have. I only have Isaiah in front of me. Uh, 7 is the starting with the people of Satan. Read the part where he starts deceiving the nations first. And then go into Gog and Magog from there. It may be just at the start of the chapter. Just start at the beginning, verse 1. Okay. Um, oh, chapter 20? Yeah. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So did you catch that it's talking about the edge of the map? All the way out to the four corners, and then it says Gog and Magog. All right, keep going. Okay. Uh, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. 
and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Uh, some manuscripts it says came down from heaven or came down from God and consumed them. All right, that's good. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right, so there's a couple things there. One, it's Satan doing the deceiving. Satan goes and deceives these nations. Two, they're on the edge of the map. They come from the end of the world. Three, it's these just countless chaotic hordes of people, right? The barbarian hordes, right? And it's not even like, you can't even uh, reduce them to a particular like category or people group. It's just, it's just God and Magog. Um, fourthly, um, they come at a time of resurrection, right? This is sort of the, the end of the old world and the start of the new. They come at the ending of the world. Right, they come at a time of resurrection. That's going to matter when we're looking here in Isaiah 22, because we're actually going to have a lot to say about resurrection. So it's significant that he brings up God here, right before he starts talking about resurrection. All right. Um, anybody have any thoughts at this point before we keep going? Is everybody tracking? We have one yes. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I was reading that quote from Isaiah, or uh, from Augustine. John, speaking of Revelation, clearly indicates that they are to be everywhere in the world, nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Of these names, I am told that literally Gog means a roof and Magog from the roof. Now that's from his book, The City of God. Um, and then I have other quotes from other church fathers. Andrew of uh, Caesarea said, Some believe that these two are the remote northern people of the Sidians, whom we call the Huns. And as we see, are the most populous and warlike of any kingdom on earth and are kept from seizing the whole earth until the loosing of the devil. It is clear that the arrival of these nations best suits the final times. So it does happen at various times in history that there are sort of many apocalypses on the earth. And when that happens, you see manifestations of all of these things in the scripture, including Gog and Magog. Now, at the time of the fathers, that was, you could sort of look at what was happening with the Huns and the growing hordes of uh, well, of Gog and Magog. And you could say, well, this is what it's referring to. Now, once you get into Celtic Christianity, um, when they're reading about the uh, the hordes from the north that are coming in to destroy everything. They say, well, this is obviously referring to the Vikings. So it does change throughout time, but um, what we're seeing is the pattern. Um, now, it wasn't without reason that the father said, well, this has to be about the Huns. I have a few things to read about them that will sort of put this in perspective. Attila the Hun was known as the Scourge of God. That was his nickname. 
what he was known as. Um, now they they developed into the the Mongol Empire, which Genghis Khan and his army killed an estimated sixty million people. Right, that's World War II level genocide. Um, the Mongol Empire was the second largest empire in known world history. Does anyone know what the first, the, the largest was? Hmm? Alexander the Great, mm -hmm. student mm -hmm. It's before that. I would say, wow. Maybe you say it was the British. The British. Oh, the British, British Empire is British. the largest empire in known world history. Well, thank you. Mongol Empire is number two. Um, uh, 0.5% of the male population of the world can be traced directly back to the era of Genghis Khan. Right? That's how much he changed the DNA of the world. The Mongols. The Mongols. Yeah. Um, said another way, one out of every 200 men is directly descended from Genghis Khan. One out of every 200 is busy. That's how. That's how uh, apocalyptic he was. In, entire races of people don't exist anymore because of the Huns and the Mongols. And I'm putting them together. I'm not saying that they're exactly the same, but they came from the same place. And conceptually, for Rome, like their coming is the end of the world. Now, around the year 500. I don't remember exactly what year, um, the Huns were invading Europe, and they got into Italy, and they were going to take Rome. So Christendom was, for all intents and purposes, I mean, Christendom as, 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 uh, as an institution was about to be over. Um, and the Huns were on the doorsteps of Rome, and the Pope went out to meet the empire outside the city and he talked with Attila the Hun and no one knows what they talked about but Attila the Hun turned around and went home. Wow. No one knows what they said. Now you might say that you know maybe there were some shady deals that happened. No one knows. No one knows what was said. But the point is that um, they kind of played out Revelation on a small scale there. I just, I mean, that's just kind of, it's just a very mysterious time of history, what happened. Um, so anyway, let's get back to Isaiah. That's Gog and Magog. When you hear about Gog and Magog, it's the Scythians, the Huns, the Mongols, the Vikings. It's the barbarians from the north who come from the mountains. And it's just chaos. So when you read in the Psalms, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where will my help come? He's not lifting up his eyes to God. He's seeing disaster coming, and he's saying, who's going to help? Now, the answer is God. But when he's looking up his eyes to the hills, he's looking at his coming destruction. Does that make sense? He's looking to the north. I've got a question. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm, uh, uh, in this teaching, God and May God, and all yeah. we're talking about, uh, there's places in Scripture where the cup is not full yet. Yeah. And as days go by, iniquity will abound and abound heretics, uh, false Christ, all of these combinations of things. 
evil personified yeah. to the ugliest evil with worst heretics uh, is that grows uh, that God's going to use these evil people in some battle somewhere uh, coming. Am I getting close to something? So it's a it's a hard teaching, but it's true it is that true. that God uses these things in history for His purposes. Yes. Isaiah 19.25 is a good summary verse for the book of Isaiah. And we covered this a few weeks ago. Um, Isaiah 19.25. Um, let me make sure I have that verse right. Yes. Um, God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That pretty much sums up Isaiah right there. You can sort of fit everything into that verse. Um, okay. Yeah. So what do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to Gog? You are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exalted town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. Does that remind you? Have y'all covered the story of the Tower of Babel yet, Craig? No, that's this week. Does this, does this bring that to mind? The story of the Tower of Babel? The day of confusion when God shows up. It's a, it's a day of uh, battering down of walls and scattering and chaos. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. So I'm looking at this as sort of an apocalyptic, an apocalyptic prophecy. You know, what do you, what do you mean? That uh, you know you're coming from the mountains. What do you mean that you know you're you think you uh, are just going to take over the world? You Gog and Magog. Look, the Lord has this day. This is God's day, right? And it's confusion, but this is God doing it, right? This is uh, this is the day of the Lord. Any any further thoughts on that section? Uh, in that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago so this is this is a this is him telling the story of the, the hordes coming in to these, these barren buildings that used to be great houses of worship in Israel. And they come in and uh, they're empty and the walls are breached and it's like a ghost town. And they marvel at the fact that they spent so much time building and preparing for defense and war and it was all in vain. Right? Because they spent so much anxiety and so much time planning and preparing 
that they forgot about God. <laughs> so, you, well, that's the classic trusting in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Trusting in your preparation. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. Any further thoughts? Our hope should be in God, not in material possessions or things. Anything. Nothing yeah. should come before uh, or the love of God that He's given us to Him. Somehow, we enjoy the benefits, but yeah. it comes to a place where, I mean, I know people that worship going to the river on Sundays or their Cadillacs or possessions. I know people like this. It's good to have nice things, but when you worship it and you forget God, right. The day of destruction is coming. Yeah. You lose the source. Yeah. And it's just just a dry well. It's a dry well. A dry well. Um, and that's the analogy that he uses. You know, they're looking. Oh, yeah, there's a reservoir for their waters. They're, they're prepared, or so they thought, for great sieges and long months of defense. Um, they've got their reservoirs all ready to go. But they lost the source. They lost the source, and it's like the woman at the well. You know, she's got her, she's got her well, and she's got her water, but she's still dry. There's no, she doesn't have the source. So then Christ says, "Drink from me, and there's your source." Do you have something there? I was just thinking about uh, the reminder of this, even for the whole Church of Babylon study of you know we can prepare and. Yeah. Remind ourselves of these things, but to also keep ourselves at the same time grounded in the source that is the Lord. Yeah. So obviously we need to practice the things we're talking about, but at the same time not forget why we're doing it. Yes. Yes. I'm not saying that to myself more than anybody else. Now I've got an example one man, I won't call names, that I know he's a friend. So well, not a close friend, but he uh, uh, he retired. He's come back to work, and I won't say where he lives, but he has like a basement in his place. He's got some powerful weapons. He's got a storage of food that he likes to brag about. He's prepared for the day that they're going to try to come on his property, and he'll hold them down. And he's got food to eat, this and that. But he has not prepared for the return of the Lord. He is not. And he knows everything, uh, uh, so I can't share anything with him. But he really believes that, and it's sad. Okay. Any further thoughts on this section? The starting in verse twelve is a whole new section, so I want to make sure we're good there before we move on. I don't really have anything else on this section, but if there's other stuff that y'all would like to bring up, I'm happy to hang out here for that. Well, this, this doesn't have much to contribute, but this brought to mind Nehemiah, you know, and they're this scrappy little group of people trying to yeah. reassemble the walls, and the, the surrounding people are just laughing at them. It's uh, just, just a measure of how, how devastated the city was. Yeah. Yeah. So in that day, this is, now we're, we're 
we're linked up now with all the verses in Scripture that talk about the day of the Lord in that day. The day where the old world ends and the, the new world begins. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. But behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is a day that, with any amount of common sense, you would do nothing but mourn. But behold, the, uh, the fools of the world are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. This is the days of Noah. This is the days of uh, uh, Egypt, while the plagues are on their doorstep. This is the days of Isaiah. Um, these are the days of the Son of Man. This is, this is us today. Right? The day of the Lord is right on our doorstep. Yes. And behold, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you recognize that quote? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Jesus uses the New Testament. It seemed like it must be an Old Testament. Well, it's, it's the Epicurean point of view. So, Paul, 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 there it is, Paul. yeah. I suspect it was probably a very common saying. Yeah. And I think the ESV is assuming that by putting it in quotes. If you're using ESV, you'll see that that's in quotations. I think they're assuming that this was just a common saying uh, that Isaiah is, is really mocking here. Yeah. Um, New King James is the same. Same thing. Well, um, Paul directly quotes this. In, he quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse yes, 32. Exactly. If after the manner of men I have followed the beast at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Is that it? That's it. He is giving a teaching about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes. As he goes into the body, the resurrection right. body. Right. Right, and he's saying, if not for the resurrection, then they're right. Why not? They're right. <laughs> it's it's just it's 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 just nihilism at the end of the day. The, but yeah, the, go ahead. The French have a similar saying to that. They say, "Après nous le déluge," which means after us comes the flood. After us comes the flood, it's like the days of Noah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, wow. So there's there's a hint here that what we're going to have is something to say about the resurrection, right? Because because Paul understood by bringing this up that this has to do with resurrection. He didn't just pull this randomly right. out of half. This is this passage is, and we're going to see this very clearly in just a moment, this is a passage about the resurrection from the dead. And so it's, it's again, Paul didn't just randomly pull that quote out of a half. This is, he is, he is so deep in the Old Testament that he's using that as a stand-in for this entire chapter, really. Alright, so the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go to this steward, to Shebna, who was over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here? that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself on the rock. 
Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land, and there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, the shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Do you remember in that passage of Revelation that at the time when the hordes are coming in, that is the time when the dead come out of the graves. Do you remember that? Yes. Right? Yes. Hades gives up her dead, right, in Revelation 20. That's at the same time that all this is going on. So that's what we see here, right? The time that the hordes are coming in, right, God says through Isaiah, right, this is my doing, right, this is my day, right? And then he says, look, you think, you think you're going to find rest in the grave? You Shebna? In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. Um, there's a lot that we could get into with this, but we're about out of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the rest of this chapter, and then we'll start with this next time. And we'll talk about Eliakim, and we'll talk about the resurrection and we'll get back into revelation because it's going to come up again and this will sort of be our bridge for next week so let me go ahead and read this in that day i will call my servant eliakim the son of hilkiah and i will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of jerusalem and to the house of judah get this and i will place on his shoulder the key of the house of david he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So let's stop there, and we will we'll read that section again at the start of next week, and we'll uh, take a deep dive into it. Thank you all for your attention. I appreciate you.